If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City, one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City. Will you pray with me? He almost had us, Holy One, the President of the United States, almost had us distracted by clearing the church square using tear gas and armed agents, by waving a Bible over his head, by using sacred symbols of the faithful as props. He almost distracted us from the reality that he is a symptom, not the disease but it feels so good to make him out to be the problem. It is so emotionally satisfying to rant about how terrible he is, for indeed he is evil. It's the kind of sermon that will get applause. But all of that keyboard self-righteousness must be matched with the same passion for change in our own lives. All politics is local, as the saying goes, or as the Apostle Paul wrote, faith without works is dead. So yes, let us denounce deadly leadership, but only if we are also doing the work in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods, in our own communities, at City Hall, down at the police headquarters and the county jail, in the state house and in the voting booth. Give us the courage to keep the pressure up on our own hearts, Holy One. For we trust your promise to be true, that if we humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, you will heal our land. Amen. This has been a week of disease, unrest, despair, anger, and grief as our nation continues to wrestle with the effects of not one, but two viruses plaguing us. One of those viruses, COVID-19, we have been coping with for a relatively short time, but the other has been here much longer. The sickness of white supremacy has been with us for centuries now. And as we continue to work for an anti-racist world, we felt convicted that this week's service needed to focus on the evil of racism and what we can do to dismantle it. 
In this moment, it feels especially important for congregations which are predominantly white, like Mayflower, to listen to and amplify the voices of black leaders. To that end, the sermon today comes from the Reverend Dr. William Barber, who is one of the co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign. I know that many of you are already familiar with this work, but if you would like to know more, please visit breachrepairers.org after the service today. Reverend Dr. Barber's sermon is longer than we are accustomed to, but I ask that we stay with it and commit to listening and learning from him. He will name systemic racism that we can then identify in our own context. So my prayer for us as we listen to the good word is that we make a commitment as a congregation to work to end racial terrorism, that we cry out for justice for Julius Jones and intentionally deepen relationships with our partner churches in the black community. And now, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. Gracious God, help us to discern what's really going on in this moment, the complexity, the depth. Help us to respond in ways that are truly committed to justice and love and mercy. Amen. I wanted to come this morning <clears throat> after talking with many people in our circle of concern and deliver a letter to America a pastoral letter in the time of protest, in the time of pain, and in the time of pandemic. Today is Pentecost Sunday. And it's a time when discernment happens. Discernment happens for on that day some thought one thing was going on and it was the apostle Peter that had to stand up and say, no, let me, let me discern. Use that moment of discernment to call the whole nation, the whole people to repentance. Like many of you, I have heard George Floyd cry, I can't breathe. And Mama, I love you. On the recordings of his lynching, his murder in the streets of Minneapolis. I've seen the pose of the officer, full body weight, hands in pocket, looking into the camera of a 17 year old that was filming. And it dawned on me that I've seen that pose before particularly out in the South when certain people are hunting and they kill animals, then they pose with them, they kneel on them, 
and take pictures as though they have downed their prey. I've watched as crowds of people, and it's important for us to see this, black people, white people, brown people, Asian people, gay people, straight people, trans people, First Nation people, have taken to those same streets and streets without, throughout the country to cry out against systemic racism. They recognize that what they saw may have happened to a black man, but in fact, it happened to all of us. And it is pain that is even deeper than what we saw on this last Memorial Day. The image of a white officer choking the life out of a black man while fellow officers looked on is viscerally reminiscent of the lynching photographs that were used to terrorize African-Americans for decades in this nation and literally to terrorize the nation. Protesters are right to decry such brutal and inhumane treatment as racism. And thank God people are in the streets refusing to accept what has been seen as normal for too long. What a shame it would be if this nation could watch a policeman murder another human being and then pose like a hunter with its prey while his colleagues looked on and there not be protests, there not be anger, there not be tears, there not be a diversity of people willing to say, this is not right, there not be outrage, there not be moral disruption. All that is needed to understand why black people and brown people and white people and Asian people and First Nation people and gay and straight and trans people are crying out is to ask what the response of our justice system would have been if a video had emerged of four black men doing that to a white man. We all know what racism looks like. Even the perpetrators of racism know what it looks like. That's why they do it. But the lethal violence, hear me, America, the lethal violence of these racist officers and others is only one manifestation of the systemic racism that is choking the life out of the American democracy. George Floyd in some ways was a tipping point. We have five systemic issues that we have to deal with in this country and not separately but together. Systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, the false moral narrative of religious nationalism and 
in this country. And they all are interlocking injustices. I come here today on Pentecost, and today is also 20 days from when the mass poor people's assembly and moral march on Washington is scheduled to happen. This a digital gathering, but originally was to be a meeting on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., because people of every race, creed, color, and sexuality. Several years ago, in the founding of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival, saw even then how deadly these five interlocking injustices are to the souls and bodies of the people of this nation and to the soul and body of the nation's democracy itself. One of the things we have to ask in this injustice period is we have to ask, why is it causing so many people to question whether this nation's commitment to the establishment of justice means anything at all? You see, George Floyd's murder would have been enough alone but it comes after the compounded death and deadliness of a pandemic that has wreaked havoc on poor and low-income communities across this nation, especially communities of color. More than 100,000 people have said, I can't breathe as this disease choked them to death. The coronavirus had spread through the fissures of our society, fissures and wounds of systemic racism and poverty. This virus has exposed the inequalities we have long accepted as normal, like a contrast dye in our body politics, even before George Floyd's death we were having to look at death. We must be clear, long before COVID came to our shores, before there was one death from COVID, this is what existed prior to George Floyd's death. This is what existed in this nation. 140 million Americans were poor and low income. One study says 700 people were dying a day from poverty and low income and quarter million a year before we declared a nation, national emergency. That, that fact in itself should traumatize us. That we were having national discussions around vaping, but 700 poor and low income people in this country were dying a day before COVID, before the death of George Floyd. No national emergency. 80 million people were uninsured or underinsured. And we knew that thousands of people die, die every year for every 500,000 people uninsured. 
knew what to do and we had the means to do it and did not do it. Then last week before we heard and saw this lynching on live stream, Columbia University published a study that said many of the 100,000 Americans we have lost did not have to die. This is trauma. The study said their deaths are the result of a government, of an administration, of a president, of members of Congress that refuse to care for its people. And yet too many in political leadership have accepted the greed and wanton disregard for human life that has become normal in our political systems. We saw millions, trillions of dollars immediately go to uphold corporations, but not the same effort to save lives that could have been saved. We all know what America needs to survive in this pandemic. We need access to health care. We need living wages. We need paid sick leave. We need housing for the homeless. We know what we need. We know what we have needed, the testing, targeting that would have slowed the spread of this death. And yet, and yet, we did not do it. Our leadership did not do it. And before George Floyd, this whole nation was traumatized by 100,000 deaths in less than four months on top of the hundreds of people who die every day already from poverty and low income. And some people were just saying, let's just go back to normal. We have seen in the midst of this, the poorest and the brownest and the blackest and the most vulnerable Americans being sent back into harm's way, often without proper protection equipment. Some of them have said to me, they feel like what they've experienced during this pandemic and this inept response as a form of mass murder. You say, why bring this up in the midst of a time when we're talking about George Floyd, because you must see that this moment is deeply traumatic. And the moment demands that all who care about the American experiment in democracy, listen closely and deeply to the uprising that is itself a collective gasp for life. As a pastor, I turn to scripture in times of crisis. And I have prayed with the prophet Isaiah this week that God would open my ears to offer a word that might sustain those in distress. I prayed with Jeremiah that we as a nation and as a world will not try to heal the wound of the people lightly. We will not try to just quickly deal with this and put it in a little box and refuse to really probe the depths of the pain and the wound. That we, would not, we, that we would not fail to recognize how the wounds of poverty 
demand social surgery. The wounds of racism demand social surgery and a strong antibiotic of truth to cleanse a septic democracy. And in the church, we are preparing for the season of Pentecost. When we recall today how God's spirit allowed people from various backgrounds to hear each other's truth in their own language. To come out of a place of quarantine and to come into the community and the street with a word of repentance and a word of restoration and liberation. And I pray that this letter might be received like this. To those who are crying out in Minneapolis and in solidarity actions across the nation, I write to say, I hear you. We hear your cry as a collective expression of the racial wounds and, of, and, 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 and economic wounds we have all inherited in this nation. And I join you as we scream because of the constant death-dealing wounds suffered by our people, people of color, poor people, over and over and over again, when all we want is to be free and full citizens. Damn, I hear you. And I hope we all hear you. I hope we hear the echoes of the screams from the past and even the screams of our children as they head toward a future afraid that they may face more of the same. Forensic scientists tell us that wounds always speak. For those who have ears to hear, the wounds of a victim have something to say about the perpetrator of the crime. What's more, wounds echo, compounded by repetition, like a concussion for someone who is struck on the head. We all hear the echo of Eric Garner's last words in George Floyd's I Can't Breathe. The people of Minneapolis cannot watch this video without reliving the trauma of Orlando Castile's murder at the hands of police. Many hear the echoes from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin to Michael Brown to Sandra Bland to Terry Brandon. We all know names of someone who has borne this trauma, even if the nation doesn't know. But there is also a litany of loss that each black community, poor community cannot forget names and stories that never made the national news but echo this trauma throughout all of our communities the same this trauma of police brutality and then there are all the other deaths that grow out of the deadly dealing of racism and poverty and each of us who carry this trauma in our bodies is crying this is screwed up and it's true a society that tolerates such disregard for black life, for brown life, for poor life is sick. 
And we are right to insist that the public note America's symptoms of spiritual death. When the president calls you thugs, he speaks more truth than he knows because in the hip hop community, thug is an acronym for the hate you give. And it's long been claimed by communities that have experienced criminalization as an assertion that the disruption of rebellion is only a reflection of the hate and the violence a community has received. The inevitable reflex of a people who cannot breathe because their life is being systematically snuffed out. Mr. President, we know what you're doing when we hear your tough talk and see you using the military as your pawn. We know what you're doing when you talk about when the looting starts, the shooting starts. We know where that came from. We all remember who are old enough and those of us who are red, red enough 1968 and the way the call for law and order was used to consolidate power, the way it was used to disregard the legitimate discontent of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, the anti-poverty movement. We are not naive, not naive, but we, can, as active participants in a fledgling democracy, still imagine better leadership. We still have the capacity to ask, what if the leadership in this country was moved to arrest police who destroy and murder people's lives as much as they are moved to arrest those who destroy property? What if? Instead of a president who tweets when the looting starts, the shooting starts, we had leadership that could unequivocally say, when you use police power in the name of the state to murder and lynch and destroy, you will be prosecuted for your crimes. What if before the death of George Floyd, we had dealt with the deaths from poverty the deaths from the denial of health care. What if we understood, as Coretta Scott King said, that violence is denying children opportunity and denying health care and denying living wages and even an apathetic attitude that refuses to deal with these other areas of violence is a cynical form of violence. To those who look at the fires in Minneapolis and say there must be a better way, I must say that no one wants to see their community burn. No one wants to see brokenness and glasses and property. But they have also shared, many of those who have protested for years, they have shared how their nonviolent pleas and protests have gone unnoticed for years as the situation has gotten out of hand. We hear that out of Minneapolis and other places around this country. No one knows who and what is behind the property damage. We know who's around, who's, who's behind the bodily death. 
No one knows exactly who and what is behind the property damage and the violence to property, but we do know the countless activists and grassroots leaders and preachers who were screaming nonviolently long before now, change America, change Minneapolis, change North Carolina, change New York. And they're still crying out nonviolently. They're still engaged in righteous militancy, deeply rooted in nonviolence. Rather than listen, many of those in power saw even their nonviolent protests as an unwelcome development. This is so often the case because many Americans struggle to imagine that our government's policies and to use the language of the Declaration of Independence is long train of abuses. Many Americans struggle to imagine that these long train of abuses demand radical transformation. Too often, we want to believe racism is merely caused by a few bad actors. We want to turn racism into a spectacle issue, something that we view every now and again when something like George Floyd's death happens, like that's the only death that comes from the policies and the realities of the nation. We only want to consider the cruel legacy of racism when an egregious action escalates publicly and escalates outrage at this level. When in fact, when we look at the facts, we should be outraged mostly all the time. Black Americans will tell you, brown Americans, First Nation Americans, Progressive white Americans with deep conscience and others will tell you black Americans have rarely been able to sustain such illusions that racism is just a few bad actors. Deadly racism is always with us and not only through police brutality. In the midst of the current pandemic, we are painfully aware that our families bear a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 deaths. In some cities where racial data is available, and that's the problem, we don't even have all of the data, racial data, economic data. But what we know is that black people are six times as likely to die from the virus as their white counterparts. Even before COVID, large numbers of black Americans died because of the racial disparities in healthcare, not because of their race, but the racial disparities, the systemic racism, which are systemic and not unintentional. African Americans are three times more likely to die from particular air pollution than our fellow Americans. The percentage of black children suffering from asthma is nearly double that of white people. And the death rate is 10 times higher. And this is but a reflection of the fissures of inequality that run through every institution in our public life where the black wealth gap and education gap and healthcare gap have persisted despite the civil rights movement and legal desegregation and symbolic affirmative action. We understand that the same mentality 
that will accept and defend the violence of armed officers against unarmed black people and people of color will also send black, brown, and poor white people into harm's way during a pandemic in the name of liberty and, and the economy. Too much death is part and parcel of the policies of racism and the policies of inequality, economic inequality in this culture. Many people have cited Dr. King to remind Americans that a riot is the language of the unheard. But I've been reflecting on a eulogy he offered when another man, a white man who came to Selma, Alabama to work for voting rights was brutally murdered by racist violence in 1965. At the funeral for James Reed, Dr. King said it's not enough to ask who killed the victim in the case of James Reed or in the case like the murder of George Floyd, he said, we have to ask what killed him. Weak and unacceptable charges have been brought against the officer whose knee choked George Floyd, staying on his neck for three minutes after he went unconscious but no charges have been filed against the other officers who stood by and watched. And even prosecutors are saying, we're trying to do what we can probably win. Even that statement is a form of violence, that you can see someone literally lynched and choked to death and posed over in broad daylight on camera. And prosecutors who want justice wonder if the justice system will even provide it. But even still, dealing with who did the killing is not all that justice demands. Dr. King said the question is not only who killed him, but what killed him. The systemic racism that killed George Floyd has taken untold souls from us over 400 years. And it is killing the very possibility of American democracy today. I joined those screaming that this is all screwed up and it's been screwed up for far too long. But I also must declare that we are not screwed up as long as we have the conscience and the humanity to know what is right and what is wrong. In fact, we are clothed in our right minds when we exist, insist that no human being should tolerate such cruelty. We are clothed in our right mind when we say we can no longer accept the death that comes from poverty, the death that comes from the denial of health care, the death that comes in the midst of a pandemic, not because of the germ, but because of greed and ineptness and intentional looking the other way. Those who have faced the lethal force of systemic racism and those who have, some have faced the lethal force of policy, racism, and policy, economic injustice, we've also learned that we can be wounded healers. We don't have to be arbitrarily destructive, and yet we can be strong and committed and have the kind of righteous militancy that is necessary, what Dr. King once called a marvelous new militancy. We can be, yes, we can, assuredly determined to never accept the destruction of our bodies and dreams as an acceptable reality. 
by any police person or by any policy, we have learned that there is a force more powerful and that when hands that once picked cotton can join with white hands and native hands and brown hands and Asian hands, <clears throat> that we have been able down through history to fundamentally reconstruct this democracy. Has it done everything? No. But we are not going to give in to the cynicalism that things cannot continually be ch changed. That is why I want us to look at those crowds deeply in the street, listen to them, hear them, see the diversity. And remember that in our history, slavery was abolished. Women did gain the right to vote. Labor did win a 40-hour work week and minimum wage. The civil rights movement in the face of lynching and shooting did expand the right to vote for African-Americans and change laws. And they did it when people found their way together. When people decided in the spirit of Pentecost and in the power of the spirit that they were greater than the spirit of greed, the spirit of racism, the spirit of injustice, and that they would be united together in a common humanity. It doesn't always take everybody, but it does take somebody. If we take the time to listen to this nation's wounds, they tell us where to look for hope. Somebody asked me the other day, what is the hope? I said, the hope is in the morning. The M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The hope is in the screens. The hope is in the tears. The hope is in the black and the white and the brown, the gay and the straight, saying, this is screwed up, this is wrong. The hope is in the very things that make us want to rush from this place. It make too many people want to heal this wound lightly. There's a sense in which right now we must refuse to be comforted too quickly. There is a sense right now that what we are hearing is what the scriptures talked about when it said there's a sound of mourning coming from Ramah and Rachel is refusing to be comforted. It is only if these screams and tears and protests shake the very conscience of this nation and we do what we know what to do, not another task force, but we take up the task of addressing these issues. And our conscience is shaken until there is real political and judicial repentance. Can we hope for a better society on the other side of this? But we cannot try to hurry up and put the screams and the tears and the hurt back in the bottle to just get back to some normal that was abnormal in the first place. Hear the screams. Feel the tears. The very people who've been rejected over and over again are the ones who have shown us the possibility of a more perfect nation. They are telling us these wounds are too much. This death is too much. That's why even before this, and in 20 days on June 20 of 2020, poor and low-income Americans of every race and creed and culture and sexuality are planning a digital mass gathering to lift up a new moral agenda in public life, to take on the death-dealing policies, to say, to, to, to put before the nation the picture of our pain, 
white coal miners from Kentucky standing with black folk from Alabama, Latinos from California standing with black folk from the Carolinas, black and white women who have suffered the pain of death because of the lack of health care standing together. We didn't know that this was going to be the case. When we set this date for this event two years ago, we had no way of knowing that over 100,000 Americans would have breathed their last breath due to COVID, or, no, or more importantly, many of them due to the false response to COVID. We didn't know that George Floyd's dying words would have forced the nation to consider how the knee of white supremacy continues to bear down on our common life. But we knew already before that that there was too much death, too much pain, too many wounds. And we were listening to the wounds from California to Carolina, from Maine to Mississippi. And we know where to look for hope. The hope is right in the valley of the rejected. If we listen, America, if we listen, and now is the time for us to not to stop mourning, but to mourn and refuse to be comforted, to unite our collective moral power and demand transformative change. Right now, while we're crying, someone asked a question one day to me, do you expect us to change the healthcare system in the midst of a pandemic? Shouldn't we wait till afterwards and do that? I said, that is not the way real transformation happens. We change slavery in the midst of it. We change Jim Crow in the midst of it. We change refusing women the right to vote in the midst of it. We change labor laws when men and women were dying from being overworked and destroyed and put in all kinds of trouble because of people's greed. You change things when, the ch when what is happening is no longer working. It is dying and the death has become too much and the pain has become too much. Now is the moment, right now. The screams and the wounds and the pain and the tears. Don't get so caught up. Sure, there's an addressing of property damage. But don't ever miss in the midst of this what the real damage is. What the real violence is, what the real looting is, the way in which the greed of this society gives all resources to the top and leaves 140 million people poor and low wealth and dying. That the real, real violence is the violence that causes death every day from police brutality to police brutality. The violence is a nation where a president would say, I'm going to use the Defense Production Act to make meat packers go back to work, but I'm not going to use that same Defense Production Act to make sure they have what they need. The policy violence that in the midst of a pandemic, we've still not said we're going to give people health care. And knowing they're dying, we're not going to make sure they have sick leave, knowing that they're dying. Real violence. Not just the destruction of property. Fires, don't nobody wants that. The greatest violence, the dead bodies, dead souls, is killing what's left of this democracy. 
It doesn't have to be. If we hear the mourning and the screams and see this public trauma, this public mourning, and we respond to it, not by covering over it lightly, saying, let's just get back to normal quietness. But if we say, these screams are the signal that change can no longer wait. We must see it. We must establish justice now. We must provide for the common defense now. We must promote the general welfare now. It is the only way to ensure domestic tra tranquility now and in the future. We must focus on love and justice. We must understand that any nation is under judgment until that nation does right by the poor and the sick and the homeless and the broken and the immigrant. The screams from the valleys are the sign. It's a sign actually of hope that people have not lost it to the point that they're numb to the injustices. The worst thing for America would have been for us to see George Floyd breathe his last breath and die in front of us and people just say, oh well, that's the way it is. Nothing can be done. The screams, the hurt, the pain, the righteous marching, the standing together of every race, creed, and color. The call is saying that this is more than just the death of one man, but the death dealing in society. The hope right in the midst of that pain, that grief, that mourning. We still have a chance, America. Change. And on this Pentecost day, I pray that we hear the tongues of this moment and we hear the wounds speaking to us and we change, change, change. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching from Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.